I want to preach the last message in this series. This really says part 14, but you know, I did a couple of two-parters, so this is about message number 16 or 17, I think, in this series. But today is the completion of the uh, of our uh, study of the book of James, and in January I'll begin a new series with you that I'm excited about entitled On Purpose. I'm going to be talking about uh, living your life on purpose, and I'll give you more information as we get closer to that, but uh, today we finish up uh, the book of James, and I want to finish with a very, uh, I believe, maybe the most specific passage in all of the New Testament about healing, the power of healing prayer. Uh, during uh, his pastoral ministry, Augustine, one of the church fathers, uh, came to know a woman in Carthage named uh, Innocentia. And uh, she was a very godly woman. She was highly revered and regarded. And tragically, she discovered that she had breast cancer. A physician in that era told her that the disease was incurable and she could opt out for a mastectomy, which would possibly prolong her life a little. Or she could follow the advice of Hippocrates and simply do nothing. But either way, she was told death would not be put off for long. And Augustine reports that she was dismayed by the diagnosis, and as a result of that, she turned his words for help to God alone in prayer. And in a dream, Innocentia was told to wait at the baptistry for the first woman who came out after being baptized and to ask that woman to make the sign of the cross over the cancerous breast. Innocentia did as she was told in the dream, and she was completely cured. When she told her doctor what had happened, her doctor responded with a contemptuous kind of tone and said, Oh, that. I thought you would reveal some great discovery to me. And then seeing her kind of surprising look when she told him that, he realized that she mistook what he was saying and he step, took a step back and he said, oh, you see, what great thing is it for Christ to heal the cancer? He raised a man who had been dead for four days. In other words, cancer is no problem for him. If he can raise from the dead, he can heal the sick. You know, there are people today, some in theological settings, that argue that God stopped healing after the age of the church and the age of the apostles. But there's a fundamental problem with that, and it is that the Scripture never says that. Scripture doesn't teach that at all. Now, God doesn't always heal, but healing is no challenge for God. And there are some uh, who understand the counsel that James gives us who understand how, in fact, there is great power in healing prayer. And while God, again, doesn't always heal, healing is no challenge for God. You realize that God can, with a breath, say, it's done. And that's what the doctor was saying to this woman, Innocentia. It's no big deal for God to heal a cancer. You know, he may not, but at his breath, God can say a word, be done. And it's done. It's not a big deal for him at all. And this morning, with that idea in mind, I want us to read our text, and I want to talk with you on this subject of the power of healing prayer. 
If you're physically able to do so, why don't you stand with me and we'll begin reading in verse 13, James chapter 5. James asks a rhetorical question here. He says, is anyone among you suffering? The implied response to that is, well, yes, there are some among us that are suffering. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know what, that, what, who, that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for its message to us. We confess we don't understand all of the nuances about how you move and when you move and what causes you to move always, but we thank you that we know you do still move. And so would you teach us this morning from your word? Would you give us insight? There are certainly people among us. There are people watching us by live stream and television and listening on radio that are suffering from illnesses. And Father, would you give us wisdom as we think about all of these things, about your healing touch, your healing power, when you do. Help us to understand, Father, how to align ourselves with your will. Now, Lord, speak, we pray. Convict us, challenge us, correct us. And Lord, may you take the words of my mouth, all my study, all my thoughts, and make them pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, healing is not an unusual subject in the Scriptures. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament are examples of healing. Uh, there are a number of healing stories in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Jesus healed people in a variety of ways, didn't he? In fact, I've been asked, uh, why did Jesus use so many different kinds of methodologies when he healed? And I think there's a reason for that. I think Jesus knows that, how, that we're very prone to formulas. And that if he had healed one way the, uh, every time, we would all say, well, this is the formula that you have to use. And I think Jesus didn't want us trusting in formulas. He wanted us trusting in him. And so Jesus gave um, examples of healing. Uh, Jesus gave authority to the disciples, to the apostles, to go out and to cast out demons and to heal. And Paul was used on occasion to bring healing as well as other miracles. But we also have to understand that healing is a very complicated matter. And the theology of healing is prone to be misused. And that can be the cause, I believe, for a lot of misunderstanding regarding why God heals sometimes and sometimes he does not. James addresses this subject in the verses that we just read because Christians, like other people, get sick and die. So while James doesn't give us a formula as such, James does outline, I believe, some principles that are significant elements 
in this matter of prayer and healing. Now, before I give you those and we look at those, and because, as I said a moment ago, this healing thing is a complicated matter, I think we need to understand that there are several reasons for sickness. And this is important if we are going to understand why God sometimes does and sometimes God doesn't. For example, the biggest one of all in my mind is because you live in a broken world. There's sickness. There's death. There's illness that comes and came with the fall. It came. That's why, by the way, we look forward to the day when in heaven there will be no illness. There will be no sickness. It's the leaves of the tree, the scripture says, are for the healing of the nations as it relates to heaven. We look forward to that because heaven will not be this broken place that you and I live in with pain and suffering and uh, tragedy. And so the first reason that there is sickness is because this is a fallen world. This is a broken world. And as long as we live in this world, we will encounter those things. The second reason that, that there is sickness is the result of sin. Now there are some people who say, and I don't think you can find this in Scripture at all, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. There are some people who say all sickness, uh, if, you, if there's sickness in your life, you've got some kind of sin in your life. There, oh, I've dealt with that. I've actually had people uh, that I've had to, to deal with who have come to believe that only, uh, the only reason they are sick is because of sin. But sin can be a cause of sickness. The Bible's clear about that. In 1 John 5, 16, uh, John writes and refers to the sin unto death. The sin unto death. Now, we don't fully understand that. There's not a lot in the Scripture about that. I think I've, I've seen that a couple of times in my ministry. But it, the, the sin unto death, where a person continues to live in sin, refuses to repent of their sin, and God finally says, okay, I'm going to take you out. And this seems to be focused more on Christians than anyone else. Christian that refuses to repent. And they're actually doing more damage to the cause of Christ. And Christ says, I love you, but I'm not going to allow you to continue to live like this and bring disrepute upon the name of, of Christ. Or there's 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30 Paul dealt with uh, the Corinthians who were abusing the Lord's Supper. Maybe you're familiar with that passage. And he makes this statement in verse 30. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. Because they were mishandling the Lord's Supper. And so sometimes sickness is the result of sin. Then, uh, third, I would tell you, sometimes sickness is the result uh, of Satan. It's caused by Satan. You know the story of Job. We're reviewing the book of Job in our Wednesday night pastor's Bible study, and you remember what the scripture says. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And then perhaps you remember the story of the occasion in Luke chapter 13, verse 16. There was a woman that's referred to as having a disabling spirit. And the scripture says of that, and... This woman, a daughter of Abraham, ought she not uh, be freed from the bondage of Satan for 18 years? And then in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, the Bible says that Jesus went about healing all who were oppressed of the devil. So some sickness is caused by Satan. Now Satan has to operate under the, do uh, the domain of the authority that has been granted to him uh, uh, in this world. But he sometimes has liberty to cause sickness. And then sometimes sickness 
is for the glory of God. Sometimes God allows sickness or even enables sickness for a special purpose. Uh, there's Paul's thorn in the flesh. Uh, you remember Paul talked about that, and he said, I asked God to heal me of that thorn of the flesh. Now, this is a man who had been used of God to bring healing to others, and then he says, God, heal me of this thorn. And he said, I asked him three times, and God didn't remove the thorn, and then Paul realized what was going on. You remember what he said? He said, he said I realized that the thorn was given to me in order to humble me and keep me from becoming proud and arrogant. Why would Paul become proud? Well, this is the same Paul that had been taken up into heaven, and he said he saw things that were too glorious to express. And to keep him from getting proud, many scholars believe God said the thorn is to keep you from becoming so proud of the experiences that you've already had with me that others haven't had. And so he said, I realized in my weakness, God had a purpose for the thorn because it made me depend on him and my weakness became a strength. Sometimes sickness is for the glory of God. You remember the blind man that Jesus healed. And you remember the Pharisees asked Jesus a question about the blind man. They said, um, who sinned that this man should be born blind? Uh, and um, Jesus' response was, no one sinned that he would, should be born blind. This man's blindness is not the result of sin. It is for the glory of God. It is so that God may be glorified in his healing. It is to show the world the power of God and who God is. And so some sickness in our lives is for the glory of God. So it's important to understand that that there are reasons for sickness and important to understand why God no, doesn't always heal. But be that as it is, while James doesn't give what I would call a formula, he does give us some principles, some things that we can do when we are seeking the healing of God in our life. What are they? Let's talk about them. First of all, James talks about the solicitation for healing. Verses 13 and 14, he says, you know, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. Now, what does this word elders mean? He, he says, you're if you're sick, you're to solicit the, the elders. What does this mean? Well, we tend to use the term elder to refer to someone who is, is older. That's the etymology of the word. That's how the word kind of is used in our vocabulary. But in the scripture, it doesn't always refer to age. It can, but generally it refers to leaders in the church. In this case, uh, and it is often used uh, interchangeably in other places in the New Testament, the Greek word for pastors or bishops. And it refers to these leaders, leaders in the church. It denotes a spiritual kind of maturity, not just age. And it denotes a kind of spiritual leadership. James says this is the starting place for prayer and healing. Now, let me suggest about that three things. Number one, James suggests that the sick person was to initiate the call. The sick person is to initiate the call. I agree with what Dr. Adrian Rogers said many years ago. He said, no one is to go for this particular ministry without an invitation. Not some self-anointed person, not some busybody, some self-appointed person with a bottle of anointing oil. That's not what he's talking about. James is talking about someone sending for the elders of the church. In other words, 
this is a ministry of response, not a ministry that is initiated by the elder. Does that make, so the elder's not, I got this bottle of oil, who, who am I going to anoint with it? No, it is to wait. The, the call is to be initiated from uh, the person that is sick. The second thing that I would, uh, would show you here is that the elders were the ones to anoint, and they were to anoint with oil. Now, <clears throat> some have suggested that this was medicinal oil, or in other words, what we would call medicine. It had medicinal qualities about it. I don't believe this is the case at all. Although I do believe, and this is probably the place to say it, that God uses doctors. I believe that. I believe doctors are sometimes the touch of God's hand. And so when we say they used oil and there's some mystical quality about that, we don't say that exclude doctors, don't use your doctors. In fact, I would say this, <clears throat> go see the doctor. Do what the doctor says. He may be the instrument of God to bring healing in your life, or she may be the, the doctor that God uses to, uh, and there are stories of doctors who will just say, look, I, you know, this is what, what we did, but God had to bring the healing. Uh, this is not some oil that is a magic potion. Most likely it was olive oil. Olive oil is plenteous in the Holy Land, and it was not a magic potion. But let me tell you why the oil. The oil in Scripture, as far back as Leviticus and in other places in the Scripture, is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so when the anointing process is happening, it is symbolic of the Holy Spirit sanctifying a person for greater service to God. What I mean by that? In other words, the oil here is a symbolic application of the Spirit of God and the touch of the Spirit to heal a person in order for them to be able to serve God greater than ever before. To raise them up so that they can serve God. Not just to get them up, but to get them up for the purpose of, of using their lives for the greater glory of God. The third observation I'd make here is that the elders are instructed to pray over the sick person. And Now, now watch this because... We're, this is not always identified in the process. Uh, there's something unique about the prayer here, and that is, if you look carefully, it says to pray over, not to pray for. Do you get that? That they shall pray over them means, means that those praying are to begin praying for the will of God over the person. Not just praying for the person, they're praying over the person. And they're praying for the will of God to be achieved through this person. So, the first thing that we notice is the solicitation for healing prayer. Initiated by the person who is ill. The second thing that I want you to see this morning is the characterization of healing prayer. Verse 15. And the prayer of faith, that's the characterization. It is the prayer of faith. It denotes the kind of prayers that are, are offered uh, there by faith. They are not rote. They are not ritualistic. Again, they're not formula, uh, formula uh, uh, prayers. They are, they are prayers of faith. They are confident prayers which are rooted in the belief that God is able and that he is listening and hears the appeals of those spiritual leaders who are mature in the faith and offering the prayer. 
Now, the prayer of faith for healing is not a mandate to God. It's very important here, and I think this is sometimes where the misuse comes in. The prayer of faith for healing is not a mandate to God. Praying in faith is not a command. It isn't a command to God, nor is it a demand of God. The prayer of faith, rather, is a request with full faith that God is able to heal and does, in fact, heal within the boundaries of His will. So when we come to God with a prayer of faith for healing, we're not saying, God, I, I demand that you heal. That's not a prayer of faith. I'm exercising faith. I'm commanding God. God has to do what I've said. No, that's not the prayer of faith. In fact, that's pretty dangerous when you start commanding God. And you tell God that he has to do what you have said because you have faith. And are you with me? Do you understand? But what it does, what it is, it is a request that is full of faith that I know my God is able. I'm asking, I'm not asking, I'm not going, well, <laughs> he, he might, he might could. It is no, I'm praying in faith and I'm aligning my faith with his ability and the boundaries of his will, within the boundaries of his will. Ray Steadman, in his book, Man of Faith, wrote this. He says, some people think the prayer of faith is crawling out on a limb and then begging God to keep someone from sawing it off. But that's not real prayer. That's presumption. If God makes it clear that he wants you out on a limb, fine. You'll be perfectly safe there. But if not, it's presumptuous to crawl out on that limb expecting God to protect you and keep you there. Now, having said that, let me add this. Faithless praying, that is, asking without genuine belief, will definitely limit God's healing hand. How do we know that? Well, I refer you to Mark 6 and verse 5. Jesus was in his hometown. He was in Nazareth. And you remember what, what he said there, or the scripture says there? It says, and because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them. So there is a connection between believing and receiving, without a doubt. Faithless praying, that is asking without genuine belief, definitely limits God's hand. But it's not that God can't, it's that our unbelief limits. You remember the man that brought, came to uh, Jesus and he needed uh, Jesus' touch on uh, his son, I believe it was, and, and uh, he said, uh, if you will, you can heal my son. Do you remember what Jesus' response to him was? He says, if. And then that's where Jesus said, all things are possible, what class? To him that believes. And I love the man's response because I, I just think it, I identify with it so much. He said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And the Bible says that Jesus responded to him. He's, you know what the man was saying? He said, I know, but I'm struggling here. Would you help me believe so that I can receive? And so there is certainly a connection between belief in his ability and receiving uh, his work. So here's how to understand the prayer of faith. Let me give you two or three things to help you understand the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith is praying with confidence in God's ability. It is unwavering. 
in the assurance that God can heal. In fact, you don't have to turn back there, but let me remind you, if we began this in the first message, we read chapter 1 and verse 6, really verse 5, talking about trials and difficulties and sufferings and persecution. He talks about uh, asking in faith, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. And that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord because he's double-minded. So first of all, note that pray, it is praying with confidence in God's ability. Second, it is praying in agreement with God's will. The prayer of faith is praying with confidence in God's ability, but it is also praying in agreement with God's will. It is praying for alignment to God's purpose, and it is accepting of the outcome of God's will. Did you get that? It's praying in alignment with God's purpose, and it is accepting of God's will in the outcome, whatever that may be. You see, when it's God's will to heal, God will give you faith to believe. When it's God's will to heal, He will give you faith to believe. I've seen it. And frankly, I've experienced what I'm talking about here. I remember a time many years ago, my dad's been in heaven for a long time now, but I remember my dad battled COPD. And I remember many years ago, I got a call. I was pastoring down in Florida. I got a call from my older sister. She said, I just want to give you an update. Dad's been taken to the hospital. And uh, he has been, they put him in ICU. And uh, they don't know if he will make it. And I'll call you back here in just a little while and give you an update so you can know about making travel plans to get here, that sort of thing. And so I remember where I was. I was in my car. I was actually going to make a visit to a church member, and I was driving. I can see it right now in my mind where I was, and, and uh, I'm praying for my dad. I start praying for my dad. Lord, heal my dad. It's not, look, sometimes the prayers aren't complicated. Lord, touch my dad. Lord, heal my dad. Lord, preserve his life. And I started praying that, and I did that as I'm driving with my eyes open. Did y'all know you can pray with your eyes open? If you don't, start, especially on the circle. And I'm praying, I'm talking to the Lord, and I hadn't been praying maybe five minutes. I'm driving to this destination, I'm praying, and, and uh, within about five minutes, I had this peace come over me, and the Lord whispered in my heart, this is what he whispered in my heart, it's done. Now, I have to tell you something. This is the first time I'd ever had something like that happen. I've had it happen on numerous occasions since then, but this is the first time anything like that had happened. And so you know what I did? I continued to try to pray. And guess what? I got frustrated because my mind was in a hundred other places. I couldn't concentrate on praying any longer for my dad. And I'm thinking, my dad's in ICU, my dad, and I can't pray. And then it dawned on me. And for some crazy reason, listen to this, I have one of those clocks, you know, how they used to put them on your dashboard there. there, And I happened to look, and it was 3.05. But I can't can't sustain this prayer. And then I'm feeling guilty. This is my dad, and I'm having trouble praying for him. And it suddenly dawned on me, wait a minute. The Lord just told me that he'd done it. He had healed my dad. A couple of hours later, my older sister calls back. She says, don't worry, you don't need to come. 
And uh, she said, Dad's doing fine. I said, I know. She said, how do you know? I said, the Lord told me. I said, when did he get... In fact, she said, he's sitting up in the bed. He's talking. And they're going to send him home from ICU. It was, they're all astounded. And I said, oh, by the way, can I ask you, about what time did that happen? She said, 3.05. Now, here's my point. The Lord helped. It took me a, a bit, but suddenly it dawned on me, the reason I can't pray is because he's already done it. He gave me faith to believe. And once that happened, then suddenly I had the peace. And once I realized, wait a minute, you don't have to keep praying when God says, I've taken care of this, or yes, or no. So the prayer of faith is praying in agreement with God's will. Then a third thing it is, is it is praying according to the promises of God's word. Let me just tell you how to simply do that. Take the Word of God, and you need to know it. I'm going to be talking about that in the new year in this new series that I'll be doing, but you need to know the Word of God. Uh, so you're going to have to stay in the Word of God and then take the Word of God and pray it over people. Take it and pray it over people. Take it and personalize it. Put their name in places. The Psalms are a great place to get prayers to pray over people that are from the Word of God. But take promises in the Word of God and pray the promises of God. Pray those, just a footnote, over circumstances in your life. Put the Word of God on top of it. Does that make sense? By faith, here's the promise of God. I believe the promise of God. So I'm going to pray the promise of God for this person. Now remember, everything... God determines what aligns with his will. Even Jesus understood that. When he prayed in the garden, what did he say? God, take this suffering away from me. That's what he was praying, you understand. Lord, is there another way where I don't have to suffer like this? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so uh, these three things will help you understand what it means to, to offer the prayer of faith. So James gives us the solicitation of healing prayer. He gives us the characterization, that is the prayer of faith of healing prayer. And now number three, we come to the reconciliation of healing prayer. Verse 16, he says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Interesting that he inserts this into this uh, section. And remember, we started this message by discussing the reasons for sickness. Uh, well, this statement about confession and the forgiveness of sin suggests that in some instances, at least, James was dealing with people whose illness was due to their sin. In other words, they were sick, in fact, because of their sin. And so we, he uh, counsels them to confess their sins to one another uh, in order that they might be healed. Sickness can be caused, by the way, by harboring resentment. Again, and, and, and the message is to believers, hello? This message is written to Christians. Sickness can be caused by harboring resentment. And you know, it's difficult to pray if you've got ill will in your heart, isn't it? 
We know that what resentment does physically. We know what unforgiveness does physically. We know the physical effects of jealousy and bitterness, what they can do to us. And dealing with these, may, these things may in fact be a significant factor in spiritual and physical healing for a person. It's possible that what James is doing here is reinforcing Jesus' own teaching concerning the importance of reconciliation between believers in order to experience healing. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why it's so important that you and I are clean before God and that we are right with each other if we are in need of God's healing touch. The psalmist writes in Psalm 66, in verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. So I want to have the power of healing prayer, then there I need to get my act together. Maybe that's how we summarize what James is saying. If, if we want that kind of uh, a healing prayer power, let's make sure we're clean before God. On some occasions when we and our prayer team have been asked, would we pray uh, and anoint people for health issues, um, I will always ask that person, are you clean before the Lord? Is there any sin that you need to get right with God? Why? I do it based on, on this passage here. I don't understand all of that except to say it's in the book. The book says to do it, so we ought to do it. Hello? And so, so that's what James is saying. Make sure you're clean before the Lord. We've all found ourselves. We've all found ourselves in this day and age, uh, stuck trying to to figure out some problem on our computer or our smartphone or our tablets or whatever other electronic device it is. And there have been some studies, multiple studies, in fact, uh, about one of the biggest time wasters in the workplace today is from computer-related malfunctions. And one study found that the average person at work spends 20 to 25 minutes a day trying to fix a computer-related issue. They even have gone so far as to say the estimated cost to larger companies in the U.S. is somewhere in the ballpark of $4,000 a minute. But there is an easy solution that some of the pros uh, tell us to use, and it's a simple remedy in most cases it is turning off the computer and restarting it turning off over half of listen according to this study over half of the computer problems that technicians deal with can be fixed with a simple reboot and the reason for that is that that that's Systems have processes once you enable stuff that starts running in the background and they continually run behind the scenes. And these processes leave behind electronic footprints that take up uh, what we call random access memory or RAM. And it uses up that and consequently can overload the system, these background processes. But when you turn off the computer, your smartphone, these processes end and it allows you to start with a clean slate and a faster, more efficient working device. What in the world does that have to do, Pastor, with the power of healing prayer? I'm so glad you asked. 
I think it's a perfect illustration of a principle that applies to us, and that is that many of the problems that ail us can be fixed through confession and forgiveness, which enables us to reboot our lives and experience God's healing touch. Not everything, but there are a lot of things. That's why James puts this in here. Is there there sin you need to deal with? Deal with it so that you can be healed. Is it bitterness, resentment? Is it something physiological? And Well, don't underestimate the power of reconciliation in connection with health and healing. All right, so James gives us the solicitation of healing prayer, and he gives us the characterization of healing prayer, and he discusses the reconciliation needed in healing prayer. And here's the last thing we come to. He gives us the inspiration for healing prayer. And this is my favorite part of the passage. He uses an illustration. The illustration is of Elijah. He says in verses 17 and 18, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently. And by the way, verse 17 connects with the last part of verse 16. Look at the last part of verse 16. James writes, The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. All right? The prayer of the righteous person has great power when it's working, when it's being offered. And then what does he do? He says, let me illustrate it with a man named Elijah. And there's the connection. He says, so you want to see what a righteous man of prayer looks like? Let's look at Elijah. He had a nature just like ours. We have a tendency, don't you think? We have a tendency to take Elijah and Moses and Elisha and the apostles, and we we do this with them, and we put them up here and say, but they're just different, and we're here. Do you realize what James is saying? He's saying Elijah has the same nature you do. Elijah has, and so he says, I want to inspire you in prayer to understand something, because, see, he knew that they held Elijah with great esteem. Oh, Elijah. Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind of fire. Elijah. Yeah, if Elijah prays it, yeah. But James says, you're no different than Elijah in terms of your nature. You're both humans. You're both dependent upon God. In other words, Elijah becomes, let him be your inspiration. And God is saying, I fully believe that that your prayers have the potential to be as powerful and as effective as were the great prophets of God. So how did Elijah pray? He tells us. He prayed fervently. Elijah wasn't a perfect human, but he was clean before God, and because he was, he prayed fervently. That means he prayed with intensity. And it may even refer to his physical posture. You know, I call you often to come down to this altar. There is something about posture in prayer because it's a humbling act. It is saying to God, I get down as low as I can before you. I want to lay myself low before you, recognizing who you are. And in 1 Kings 18, 42, it says, And Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. He got down low. because Why? To, to, to pray with intensity, to pray fervently. And the inspiration of Elijah for us is that if, 
If the earnest prayer of a right living person could become the instrument by which God controls the weather, then this kind of prayer can also be the means by which God grants healing. You say, well, I'm no Elijah. But James says, in this sense, you can be like Elijah. In this sense, you can be like Elijah. You can be a man or a woman of earnest and devoted prayer, and God will hear your prayers just like Elijah. And maybe you say, well, I have prayed earnestly and nothing happened. Well, sometimes God doesn't answer right now. Sometimes he doesn't answer right away. Sometimes because God has a gracious purpose, remember, sometimes God delays. Here's a lesson this morning about prayer. You want to learn a lesson lesson this morning about prayer? Here's a lesson this morning about prayer. Let me give this to you. As, As one man of God put it, God's delays are not God's denials. There's a lesson for you. God's delays are not God's denials. I love George Mueller. How many times over the years have I mentioned him to you, and every time I do, I say, go read your biography on George Mueller. You want to see a man of prayer who was dependent on God totally. A wonderful inspiration example for your prayer life. Go read George Mueller. And in the diaries of George uh, uh, Mueller, he chronicles that devotion uh, to prayer. And in In November of 1844, he says, and I quote, I began to pray for the conversion of five people. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether they were sick or uh, whether I was sick or in health, on land, on sea, whatever the pressure on my engagements might be, I prayed for them every day. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and I prayed for the others. Five years elapsed and then the second was converted. I thank God for the second, and I prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thank God for the three, and I went on praying for the other two. These two remained unconverted. Thirty-six years later, Mueller wrote that the the other two were were sons of one of Mueller's friends, and they were still not converted. Thirty-six years later praying for them every day. But he wrote this, but I hope in God, I pray on, and I look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. In 1897, 52 years after he began to pray, these two men were finally converted after he died. You see, Mueller understood something that you and I need to understand, and that is what Jesus said to his disciples, that they should always pray and never give up. Elijah was a man of God who knew that. And so he passionately and persistently prayed. In fact, he prayed the same prayer seven times. You know that prayer about, is it rain? You know, God, make it. It wasn't like God send the rain. He prayed, God send the rain. Go read the story and God send the rain and then he sent his servant. Go out there and look and see if there are any clouds. Came back in, no clouds. He prayed again. Go see if there's a cloud. No cloud. He prayed again. No cloud. Seven times he prayed until the answer arrived. But that's the power of persistent prayer. Bobby Beverly writes in Miracles Happen When Women Pray, she said, I remember the first time my older son Jim and I worked as counselors with the Billy Graham crusade. 
She said it was held at Shea Stadium in New York, and she said the wind patterns that were, were typical caused the planes to fly right over the stadium to LaGuardia Airport. Back and forth they went, back and forth they went. Dozens by the hour, she wrote. And she said on opening night of counselor training, Billy Graham started talking with us from the podium, and as he did, these planes started whizzing overhead, uh, roaring with their massive engines. And finally, he paused, he glanced up, and he quietly said, he said, we'll have to do something about this noise. This just won't do. And then he bowed his head, and he sent, uh, said a simple prayer, Lord, we ask you to shift the wind and send these planes in another direction. Thank you, amen. Well, we were believers, but this was still a tall order, we thought. He's rerouting the planes. And we weren't sure what, if anything, to expect, she writes. But God did it. He answered our prayers in a wondrous way. And the morning newspaper, the New York Times, reported that the winds somehow during the night had changed directions. And the airplanes that had been flying over Shea Stadium had to be rerouted in another direction. For several days, they, the wind pattern completely changed. And under the preaching of Billy Graham, thousands came to Christ. By the way, at the conclusion of the crusade, the winds reverted back to their normal patterns. And the airplanes returned in that normal pattern. You get that? Things happen when you pray. Planes change their course. Healings happen. Salvation happens. You say, Pastor, have you ever seen this healing stuff you're talking about? Yes, I have. Have you ever prayed the prayer of faith and there not be healing? Yes. But I'll take it when God gives it. And when God doesn't give it, I'll understand that that is God's will. I'll tell you something else that happens when you pray. Salvation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh, the power of prayer. Nothing is beyond the realm of prayer except that which is outside of the will of God. James wants them to understand the power of healing prayer. Let's pray. Father, we don't understand all that. I know we don't have to. All we have to do is pray and believe and trust and then allow your will to be accomplished. Father, we pray this morning, that you would speak to our hearts. Father, if there are any in this place that need the ultimate, the ultimate healing experience, the saving of their soul, I pray that they'll take this moment, this opportunity to come and to give their life to you. Father, I pray that you will instruct us and teach us and help us to practice the prayer of faith, by believing what your word says and being obedient in seeking you. We pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen. Would you stand with me this morning for our time of invitation? I'll be here at the front and this altar is open. Maybe this is the perfect time for you to come and kneel before him. Maybe you're praying for someone. Maybe you're praying about something. You come and use the altar. Come and do like Elijah did. Come and, and bend your knees and lay yourself before the Lord. You may be here this morning and say, you know what, I need Christ as my Savior. I, I don't know Him. I'm not sure. If I died, I'd go to heaven, but I want to know that. Would you slip out? You come. We'll help you with that. You take one of us on one of these aisles. Just say, I need to know Christ. I want to know Christ, and we'll help you. Maybe you're here and you say, you know what I need, Pastor? I need a church home. I need a church family, and I'd like to join Ridgecrest. You take this opportunity. You come and say, I want to become a part of the family here at Ridgecrest. Are you ready? As we sing, you slip out. You come on.